coming off the incredible high of all the events and all the things that Tony reported and looking back into its go time and then coming off the incredible high of Commitment Weekend, we should give a hand clap for all the amazing things that God is doing in this church and all the amazing things that God is doing through the hearts and minds of the people here. Now, Tony did introduce me a little bit earlier, but if you haven't noticed yet, I'm not any of the other pastors on staff. I'm not Pastor Tony. I'm not Pastor Kevin. I'm not Pastor Steve. I'm not Pastor Seth. And I'm certainly not the Honorable Reverend Colin Page either. You probably noticed that. I'm not like any of those professional ministry guys. If there's one thing you know about me, my name is Casey. And if there's one thing you need to know is that I'm like each and every one of you. That's right. I'm a man of the people. I've been coming here the last five years since April of 2018, and I've been coming in and sitting in the very seats that you're sitting in right now with the very holy people who come here on Saturday night. That's right. That's right. That's right. And have you ever wondered what it feels like to come into church and not sit in your seat, but to stand up here and to give the message for the weekend? Have you ever wondered that? Well, I never really wondered how that felt, but I'm going to find out this morning how it feels anyway. So here we go. Here we go. This moment this morning is the culmination of a series of incredibly unlikely moments in my life, extremely unlikely moments. As you think back to your life, you probably can think of similar moments in your life. You know, the moments where it defies all human expectation in all normal convention, and you arrive in a moment, and you're like, whoa, how did we get here? What series of steps actually got me here today, right now? It was extremely unlikely, decades ago, in New Haven, Connecticut, when a 35-year-old woman woke up one morning, and on a whim, she decided to take her toddler son and her baby son and go to the church that was five blocks away in inner-city Connecticut. That day, she sat down in one of the pews in the back of the church. She heard the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which we believe is the power of salvation. She was convicted of her sin. She put her faith in Jesus and made him Lord over her life that day. This woman got home, and even ever since then, she's been faithfully following Jesus Christ. And I was her son, her toddler son she brought in that day. As I was growing up, I would wake up every morning and rush to my mother's room, and I would catch my mother in one of her epically long prayer sessions, laying prostrate on the bed and crying out to God. I thank my, God, I thank my mom for her witness. That was so important to me. It was extremely unlikely when a couple years later, my mother and her now husband decided to pass up an opportunity to get out of a crime infested in drug-ridden neighborhood in inner city Connecticut. They passed up that opportunity and they pooled their resources together so they could send their five-year-old son not to the local failing school, but to a country day school 20 minutes away. It was extremely unlikely decades later when a young and newly married couple in April 2018 had an opportunity to move for career advancement for the husband. And upon getting the call, of this new promoted job, the husband asked, where's the job located? And the hiring manager said, it's located in Ohio. And the husband and wife said, absolutely not. We don't know anything about Ohio. <laughs> we don't have any ties there. We don't know anything about there. We don't have any family there. We're not going there. And within two weeks, through a series of extremely unlikely moments, one thing after the other, Eventually, in two weeks, the husband frantically called the hiring manager back, begging to get back into the interview process. And he got the job, and they moved from Philadelphia all the way to Ohio, arriving in April 2018. It was extremely unlikely when this couple drove down 18 from Copley and for the first time entered the doors of this very church and this church is vastly different in every single way from any church my wife and I had ever attended in our lives. We walked through the door, and the first people we saw was Rick and Sonia Scavuzzo. <laughs> they greeted us, and because of the hospitality and the hospitality of the people 
in the lobby, shout out to First Impressions, we went home that day and said to ourselves, we'll go back again, we'll go back again. It was extremely unlikely. When one Saturday night going, coming to church service, I lost my phone and had the whole congregation looking for my phone after service, and there was an introduction with a person who's the pastor of this church at the introduction desk, and he invited me to his life group out of nowhere. That was extremely unlikely. It was also extremely unlikely when I was asked to teach in life group. I had never done such a thing. When I was asked to teach in equipping division, I had no experience doing that, and all this culminated in last year, January 12th, Wednesday, 2022, it was extremely unlikely that we had actually agreed to actually start a life group in our home, and I found myself in Home Depot frantically looking for home goods the hours and minutes before people arrived for the first time in our life group in our house. I was going through a series of emotions that, that day. What have we gotten into? Why did we let this Levigny man manipulate us into doing this? I don't have what it takes to do such a thing. Is anybody going to come to Life Group? A series of emotions. The unlikelihood of that moment pales in comparison to the unlikelihood that would take place only 13 months later, three weeks ago, when on the first Sunday of March, I attended a church in Akron right off Kenmore Boulevard, and that church had the audacity to make me their pastor. That was extremely unlikely. When I think about this last period of my life, if you were to hear about this like you're hearing about it now, you'd probably say to yourself, wow, Casey, that's a really rough and weird and bizarre period you've just been through, you've just endured. And I'd say, you're probably right. There's a lot of different feelings I've experienced. I've experienced immense disorientation at many occasions. It's been exhausting. I've been exhausted and spent. Frightening. That's the feeling I had before life group. Even starting as pastor of the church, I've been confused in many occasions. I've experienced doubt and second thoughts. But also, what I've realized is that there's been another range of emotions. It's been rewarding. It's been fulfilling, euphoric, joy-filled, awesome, exhilarating, like a flea in a doghouse, over the moon, on cloud nine. You just insert your favorite saying right there. It's been all that too as well. And as I was thinking about these experiences, I was led to a passage of Scripture in 2 Corinthians 5-7. And this passage of Scripture reads, For we live by faith, not by sight, is the NIV version. The ESV reads, For we walk by faith and not by sight. The NLT reads, For we live by believing and not by seeing. At face value, that's a pretty bizarre passage. Pretty bizarre. But as I was describing, the series of experiences I've been through have been pretty bizarre as well. So the question is, is what I've been experiencing, is that how walking by faith and not by sight, is that how that feels like? All these different ranges of emotions. And this brings us to our new three-part series called Trademark. You all are probably familiar with the term trademark. You're probably wearing clothes right now that have trademarks on them. We have an interesting trademark rivalry in our life group, which is Apple versus Android. So I'm not sure where you fall on that one. You know, Apple versus Android, good versus evil, uh, so to speak. <laughs> a trademark is a symbol, word, phrase, or design that distinguishes a product or a service from imitation brands and indicates that it is authentic and originates from a particular source. So the question is, what is trademark of a true Christian? And so what we'll be doing in this series is we'll be asking this question so that we can identify the unique and the distinguishing qualities of a true Christian versus the other diluted and imitation brands of Christianity that we see out there. That's what we'll be pursuing. And so you probably ask yourself, what, what are the distinguishing trademarks of a Christian? And so three prominent distinguishing characteristics and trademarks of a Christian, the Bible tells us are faith, hope, and love. And so we'll be talking about faith, hope, and love in these three series. 
Faith is really important, y'all. If you do a word count of the Bible, and I did this, I took the NASB version of the Bible and did a word count, you'll find some interesting things about topics that are important to the Bible, topics that show up over and over and over again. If I was to ask you, what word shows up the most in the New Testament of the Bible? That's the last 27 books of the Bible. What would your guess be? Feel free. What would your guess be? First topic is God. Go figure. God shows up the most out of any other word in the New Testament. God shows up 1,153 times. God. New Testament, what word shows up the second most in the New Testament? You got it. Go figure. Jesus shows up the second most times. Jesus shows up 949 times in the New Testament. The next word, coming in at number three, Lord. Spirit's a good guess, too. Lord shows up 606 times in the New Testament when you do a word count. So let's, let's press pause right here. If I had asked you before we started this exercise what words show up the most, it's likely you would have guessed a couple of these. I mean, this is God's word we're talking about, and all these words directly refer to God himself. But do you know which word shows up the next most number of times in the New Testament? Faith and belief. Faith, the Greek word pistis, belief. The Greek word pestuo in related words shows up 501 times. So according to our research here, this says something very, very important to us. Faith outside of God, faith is perhaps the most important topic in the Christian belief system. Faith is important. Faith is important, says John in his gospel. This is what John says about the purpose of why he wrote in John's gospel. He says all 879 verses of John's gospel in 21 chapters. This is why I'm writing. He said, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. There's that faith and belief topic here. John is saying something significant here. He's saying that our salvation is connected to belief in faith. Elsewhere, we see in several different passages of Scripture in the New Testament, a passage in the Old Testament, Habakkuk 2.4, is quoted, and it says that the righteous will live by faith. All right, so faith is really important. Faith is really important. If I'm investigating Jesus, I ought to know what faith is so I can do my own research and see it for myself, so I can see what this Jesus-following stuff is all about. If I'm a follower of Jesus, I want to know what faith is so I can grow my faith, so I can cultivate my faith, and so I can grow in intimacy and effectiveness in my discipleship with Jesus. Faith is really important. So let's go get some faith. Let's go do it. Come on. What is faith again? What what is that again? What, What exactly is that? What is faith again? So that's one of the questions we'll be asking. The first question is the definitive one. What is faith? What is that? We live in an increasingly secular world. And one commentator says about the way the world views faith is that the secular world views faith and amounts faith as basically a leap in the dark. A leap in the dark. The commentator says that this is based on the idea that modern science has disproven the things of modern religion and that in order to believe the things of faith in Jesus, you actually have to turn your back on all the facts and take a leap in the dark. That faith is blind belief. That's what the world says. Is that true? Is faith blind belief? What is faith made of? So we'll be pursuing that answer. Secondly, how do Christians walk by faith and not by sight? How does that work exactly? So we've got questions. God's word has answers. We'll be going to Hebrews 11.1. That's going to be in the Bibles in front of you, page 974. And as we always say, if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take that Bible today 
and bring it home with you and count it as a gift from us to you. That's Hebrews 11.1. We'll be looking at one verse of scripture in Hebrews. And it reads, Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. That's what the writer of Hebrews writes. So in this passage of scripture, the writer of Hebrews, he's got our questions and he responds very succinctly. He says, there is a substance to faith. He says, faith has substance. He says, there is the practice of faith. He gets real practical for us and he breaks it down what this walking by faith looks like, what good looks like. He says, there is the key to faith. And he finishes, lastly but not leastly, there is a key to faith. The substance of faith. One thing I want to acknowledge is that the writer of Hebrews is not an ordinary person. The writer of Hebrews is a literary genius par excellence. He's a faith expert and he's a preacher. And when you read Hebrews, what you find is that he's doing a two-step. He steps into exposition of scripture, and then he steps into exhortation, and he goes back and he goes forth. He's writing to people who are maybe struggling in their faith, and he's looking to encourage them and spur them on in their faith. If we want to know about faith, all we got to do is look at the approach and the technique of the writer of Hebrews and how he breaks this down. It's, it's, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. In this first verse, what we see is two clauses. The first clause reads this. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for. What does that mean? Well, when you do a study in the original language, what you find is there's something meaningful about that term that's translated confidence in the NIV. And the word for confidence is actually the Greek word hypostasis. That's hypostasis. Now, confidence is a translation there, but I think there's another sense that the writer also wanted to communicate by using that word, because it has a lot of depth in its meaning. Hypostasis can refer to that which has foundation, that which is firm, that which has actual existence, and also, and this is the translation that the King James and the New King James uses, it can refer to a substance, a substance. The writer's saying faith has substance. It's substantive. It's not something that's empty. It's not something that's blind. It has substance. If I was to translate this in my own words, I would say this. The writer is saying that faith is the thing that provides the real, the empirical, the observable, the tangible, the actual, the substantive, and the firm foundation for what we hope for, look forward to. That's what faith is. The writer is almost hearing this accusation that this is a blind thing from the world, and he's saying, no, actually, that's not right. Faith's got substance to it. So what does he do? He's writing to people that he wants to spur on in the faith, He's looking to fan the flames of their faith. And this is my fan the flames motion. I don't know why that is, but that's how I figure I'd do it. They're going through a period where they are experiencing a very anti-Christian and hostile to Jesus environment. We may be experiencing something similar right now. Back in their time, what did they call it? They called it pagan. Today we call it secular, tomato, tomato an environment that's increasingly hostile to the things of God. And what the writer is doing is he's trying to fan the flame of that faith. And what he's doing is he's feeding that faith with a substance. And so let's look at his approach. He starts off this way. And this is a chapter that many people are familiar with in the Bible, but it's interesting to see what he's doing and how he's doing it. He says the first verse, which we've read. And then he says, this is what the ancients were commended for. What he proceeds to do is this. He doesn't feed faith with something that's empty. He feeds the people's faith with tangible, 
observable, witnessed acts of God that have taken place throughout history. These are examples of God showing up and God demonstrating that he's a God of tangible evidence. And so let's see what he does here. And I'm just going to read the names and I'm going to provide the chapter reference as well of the names that are listed off in this chapter. He feeds Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel. You're probably wondering why he's going through all those names. 16 examples of heroes of faith. Why couldn't he just give two and be done with it? He's overdoing it, isn't he? What he's doing here is he's giving example after example after example so that by the time you get to the end of chapter 11, you're saying to yourself, I got the point. I got it. I got it. What he's saying loud and clear from the mountaintops is that faith is not the opposite of evidence. Faith is generated by evidence. When we stand on faith, we're not standing on something that's empty. We're standing on a firm foundation of God in history, appearing, showing up, demonstrating himself, and people witnessing the acts of a God who is not silent, who is not an absentee father, but who intervenes and interacts into history. That's what the foundation of faith is all about. Faith is generated by evidence. Okay, all right, I got that. Faith is tangible, I got it, I got it. It's, it's substantive, it's not blind, it's got something. But how do, how do we practice faith? How does, one, how does one do that? And so the writer of Hebrews lets us know about the practice of faith, and here's how he breaks it down. We read the first clause, but then we find that verse one has a second clause as well, and it reads... After saying, now faith is confidence in what we hope for, he says, and it's assurance about what we do not see. Interesting. What we hope for clearly is speaking to what we look forward to in the future. But then he talks about something that we do not see as well. What is he referring to? He, he's not referring to the future in the same sense here. He's referring to the spirit world. As Jesus says in John, the spirit it gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. People of faith put just as much weight and importance in what's going on in the spirit world as they do in the world that we see every day. People of faith believe there is an eternal purpose that supersedes and means more than even the physical reality that we believe is temporary that we all see today. There's no doubt about that. People of faith believe in the unseen. However, it does not mean that we're taking a leap in the dark when you're walking in the faith. The writer of Hebrews counteracts that notion every which way. What does the Bible give us in terms of how this walking by faith and not by sight thing looks like? Well, there's one example that the Bible gives that's given above and beyond every other human example in terms of walking by faith and not by sight. And that example is Abraham. It's Abraham. Later on in the same chapter, it reads, By faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. Well, here's what happens. God calls Abraham in chapter 12 of Genesis. Abraham's living in the land of Mesopotamia, and God says, Go. Living by faith, not by sight. He, Abraham actually does not know where he's going. God calls him to a place he did not know about, and that's far away. God calls him out of a comfort zone, out of all the people he knew, out of his normal rhythms of life, and he's asked to just leave that and desert it and go to a place he does not know. There's something not seeing about that. <laughs> There's no way around it. So if we take a look at the map of Abraham's journey up, oh, wait, that's not the map of his journey. I, mix, I mixed it up. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> this is actually the trip me and my wife took. 
when we left Philadelphia. Now, I know I'm embellishing a little bit. We, did, we didn't walk. <laughs> we didn't walk. That would have only taken six days. We didn't do that. We, we drove a car. It took under seven hours. It wasn't too bad. And, you know, I'm not saying we're like Abraham here. I mean, we, we, we did have a move package. They paid for real estate fees on both sides. And they kept us in the residence inn as well. So I'm not saying we did it by caravan. We, we drove. We drove. <laughs> but I do want to say I can relate to this story of Abraham a little bit. Abraham did not know what was on the other side of that trip, and neither did we. Very uncomfortable. We didn't know. (laughs) We didn't know. We didn't have any friends. We didn't have a church. We didn't know childcare situation for our, our child at the time. We have two more since then. We didn't know if we'd like it. We didn't know they loved Ohio State so much in the state either. (laughs) There's a number of things we didn't know. (laughs) When we look back to Abraham, what we see, and just take a look when you get home. It It is so interesting to see. Now, Abraham is a giant, but one thing you'll notice when you read about Abraham is he's just like you and he's just like me. If you read chapter 12 after he's called by God, some theologians call verses 1 through 40 the comedy of errors. <laughs> the comedy of errors. And this is what it looks like. <laughs> Abraham is disoriented. So disoriented that when he gets to the land that God had promised him, he actually leaves due to a famine, even though he's supposed to stay there. <laughs> he's exhausted every which way. Exhausted. He's frightened. In fact, he's so frightened that he gives his own wife up on two different occasions. He's frightened. He's confused every which way. He's in a new land with new people. He's got to defend himself. He's got, he's, got to, he's got to get ready to fight. He has doubt. He has second thoughts about the promises that God had made for him, that he was supposed to have a nation that comes from him, and he was in old age, as was his wife Sarah. But at the same time, when you read chapters 12, and you get to 15, and you get to 17, what you see in 15 is you see that God ratifies the covenant that he had given Abraham in 12. What you see in 17 is that God broadens the covenant and says, Abraham, I'm going to bless all people through you. And you see rewarding, fulfilling, euphoric, joy-filled, awesome, exhilarating. And then at the end, what you see is Abraham. His faith is so big through this experience that in chapter 22, he's willing to sacrifice his own son because of what God had brought him through. So God's up to something here. There seems to be a method to the madness, a method to the madness. If you're going to look at the component parts of faith, the writer of Hebrews makes it very clear. There there are some component parts to walking by faith and not by sight. And this is what it looks like. He starts off, and he's he's very rhythmic in chapter 11. I, I just love this chapter. He starts off and he says, by faith. By faith, by faith. Then he mentions the name, then the action. And recently we went through a series where we talked about in Deuteronomy the Shema. The action is always Shema. That's the Hebrew word that means two things at once. The action is always listen and obey. God speaks, God reveals his will, God is not hidden from us. And then the action is driven from. God's command, and it's in obedience to what God's will is. Then we see a positive outcome. So let's jump in the rhythm. By faith, Abraham obeyed and went. He's blessed. By faith, Abel brought a sacrifice. He was commended. By faith, Noah built an ark. His family was saved. The whole human race was saved through Noah's obedience. By faith, Rahab welcomed God's people and was saved. And we see that rhythm continue and continue and continue. And it continues right now. I see examples all around me. By faith, we, Grace Church Medina East, many of you sitting down right now, leaned into Christian community, started going to a life group, and the gospel is spread. The gospel is imprinted in your heart more. You're more confident. You speak about the gospel. By faith, I've seen we, We've gone to our neighbors, and the gospel spread that way too. By faith, we, 
go to our world in the gospel spread. By faith, we go to the next generation. We see in God's word that that's revealed to us that we are supposed to sing the praiseworthy things of our God to our children in the gospel spread to our children. By faith, we go to new communities and the gospels spread. Faith is not walking in darkness. It's not walking in taking a leap into the dark. This particular command, going to new communities, my wife and I took this pretty, pretty uh, literally. And we just went to a new community in the Kenmore section of Akron. And we don't really know what's going to happen. So there, there's, we, we don't really see what the future is going to be. We, we don't know what's going to happen with the church. But what we do know is that God has given us commands and promises. And as we're figuring it out, we are stepping within the direction that God has willed us and commanded us to every step of the way. We know that God's program to save that which is lost today is the church, and we're going to a church. We know that the power of saving and turning around any community is the gospel, which is the power of salvation for those who believe, so we're bringing the gospel. We know that God wants all people to be saved, and that includes the people in Kenmore, so we're walking on his promises. And God will figure out the rest. God will figure out the rest. Faith is not walking into darkness. Walking by faith is walking into the light of God's promises in accordance with his will. That's what walking by faith is doing. That's what's revealed to us in scripture and ex examples that we see today. So what is faith? All right, what is God doing? What is the method to the madness here? And, and I think John Piper has a recent book on what is saving faith that is very helpful to explaining what's going on here. And it reads, John Piper writes, saving faith is not simply a confident trust in general, in Jesus and God the Father, but more specifically, that they can and will do what they say. It is a confident trust rooted specifically in God's and Jesus's reliability. And that's what we see in scripture. Faith is trust, if I had to define it in one word. And what I've found is that through all these series of crazy and bizarre experiences, what God is doing is he's divorcing me from my reliability on myself and on what I say and my ability to plan. And he's pulling me closer to him. And so I rely on him. God hasn't changed in the last five years of my life or your life. But you know what? My faith in him has. I believe God for things today that I did not believe him for five years ago. And here's the good news. The good news is that God's intention is not to just modify your behavior. That's, that's not the good news. The good news is God is not looking to find you tripping, tripping things up and sinning. He's not looking to catch you in sin. The good news in the story of the Bible is that this is a God who created us to have a relationship with him. And you see it from the very beginning phases of scripture. And what God is doing in the good news is that all God is doing is he's trying to pull you closer and closer and closer to himself. The good news is reconciliation. And through this process of walking by faith and not by sight, God is just pulling you closer than he ever has before. This is the good news. And so what is the key to faith? So we finally arrive at the key to faith and spoiler alert, guys, the key to faith is Jesus. That's the spoiler alert here. Of the 16 heroes mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, what the writer does is he ends chapter 11 and then in chapter 12, he gives the best example of them all. And that example is Jesus Christ. Some theologians say that Hebrews is an ode to the supremacy of Christ. They use this term, supremacy of Christ. Supremacy of Christ means that Jesus is supreme over all other institutions and also superior to all those other institutions as well. That Jesus is greater than anything else you're seeing out there. Anything else you could experience, Jesus is greater than that. 
The writer says Jesus is a better priest than the old covenant sacrificial system. He's a better priest than those human priests they had back in the day. The writer says Jesus is a better sacrifice, whereas before in the old covenant, what we see is the need to sacrifice animals over and over and over again to atone for sin. Jesus is a better sacrifice. One sacrifice atoned for all the sins of all time. Jesus is a better sacrifice. Jesus mediates a better covenant. What we find is a law in the Old Testament, and what we see in the gospel in the New Covenant is incredible freedom, where the Holy Spirit writes the law on our hearts, navigating our steps every which way. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3 is without a doubt the climax of this passage of Scripture. And it reads, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Amen. This is the good news. You don't have a priest who can't empathize with what you're going through. You don't have some high and mighty person who can't relate. You have a priest who intercedes for you, who is, has pioneered what you're going through. He's actually walked the earth. He's experienced vulnerability. He's experienced temptation. He's suffered physically, just like you and I do today. He's pioneered our faith. He's lit the way. But also he's done what we could not do. And he's perfected our faith as well. He did what we could not do and he died for our sins. And what God basically did there is he did it all himself to bridge the gap and reconcile us to himself. But what's interesting is that you'll find there's another point that the author's trying to make here. Now remember, he is trying to encourage people to stay strong in the faith. And what he says here is fixing our eyes on Jesus. This is incredibly encouraging and clarifying, right? He says, fix your eyes on Jesus. He says, if you're serving Jesus, there's a lot of different things you can do to make sure you're doing that the right way. If you're serving Jesus, you ought to be looking more like Jesus every day. If you're not, then maybe you're not fixing your eyes on Jesus. If you're serving Jesus, the gospel ought to be on your lips more than the things of this world. That's helpful. But also what he's doing here is he's he's giving us a warning as well. When commentators look at this phrase, they say the literal translation of fixing our eyes is looking away to. Looking away to. It implies that we are to have a focus on Jesus but it also implies that we are to be looking away from some of the other things going around here. Not that we're supposed to have our head in the sand, but there's a focus and an intention that we must keep when we're thinking about Jesus. Here's here's the facts. In terms of dating Hebrews, many commentators say that this letter was written in a time that was very hostile to Christians, sure, but this was written at a time where things were about to get a lot worse. There was actually an emperor in the Roman world who many of you may have heard of, and his name was Nero. Nero is not yet in power when this is written, and he was coming. And in terms of people prosecuting and really punishing Christians, Nero was probably public enemy number one in the history of humankind. The writer of Hebrews is telling these Jesus followers in the first century, things are about to get crazy around you. Crazy but I don't want you to suffer in your faith and you need to persevere. So he's reminding them to look and fix their eyes on Jesus. Fix their eyes on Jesus. I I think the theologian Guthrie really captures the sense of this two-part message very well when he says this. Your perseverance in the Christian faith will be in direct proportion to the clarity with which you see who Jesus is 
in what he has accomplished on our behalf. That's a very, very important thought, he says. If you and I become fuzzy in our thinking about the identity of Jesus, who he is, and if we begin to be fuzzy in our thinking about the nature of the gospel, he says, what Christ has accomplished on our behalf, it is going to affect our perseverance in the faith. Huh, this is an interesting thing he's saying. Now, we're talking about trademark in our series today, and, and for those who know me, you probably recognize this is my favorite shirt because you've probably seen it 30 times in the last 12 months. I wear this shirt all the time, and my wife knows she's in the crowd. Now, <laughs> I've washed this shirt quite a few times because I wear it so often. This shirt is made by a company called Cutter and Buck. Cutter and Buck. Now, as companies do, when they make apparel, they often put their trademark somewhere on the shirt. Now, what you probably didn't notice, because I washed it so much, is that this is the Cutter and Buck trademark right here. But what you'll see is, after so much wash, it's, it's grown a little fuzzy. It's grown a little fuzzy. You can't, you can't see it as well. This shirt's been through quite a bit. This shirt's probably been weary from time to time about being worn so much. <laughs> and what happens is the trademark has faded. The writer of Hebrews is writing to people who may be experiencing the same thing. There's distractions all around them. The 24-7 news cycle is continuous. There's warring factions across the world, countries warring, political affiliations driving families apart even. And sometimes it can be easy to be distracted by everything going on and to lose a little bit of that trademark. What the writer of Hebrews is telling us and is reminding us of is what the good news is all about. And here's the good news as he states. This is how he opens Hebrews with this incredible statement on the gospel in Hebrews and what we should all be reminded of to make sure that our trademark does not fade. And it reads, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days including the days we find ourselves in right now, because we're in the same age that he was writing in. He has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. This is the good news. God is not silent. Belief has substance. And God has spoken. There's a problem in the world. There's no doubt. And there's symptoms of that problem all around us. But God is not silent and he has spoken. The way God has spoken is through his son. A trademark of people of faith is that people of faith fix their eyes on Jesus and look away to Jesus. People of faith are trademarked by this. They believe that the problem with the world is that the world needs Jesus. That is the problem, although there are many other symptoms, and that the solution is Jesus. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. I'm not ashamed of that. We're going into Kenmore. There's a million problems in Kenmore, and there's a million ways we can help. There's no doubt. But I believe in the gospel that the power to transform that community, the power to transform hearts, the power to transform minds, the problem to heal and to bring people closer to God is the gospel of Jesus. That's it. There's no and, there's no but. I'm not adding one jot or one tittle to that. God has brought me to this place in my life through all the range of emotions. There's no doubt he's brought me to a place where I'm ready to bring the message of reconciliation to the people in the world. And that is the calling that people of faith have. That's our trademark. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. 
So there's one more thing, and then we'll end here. But the outcome of faith is also pretty important. Now, when I had that table up a little bit earlier, you saw on the left-hand side, you saw a column that said positive outcome. And I know some of you who are very well-read, you've read Hebrews 11, and you said to yourself, positive outcome case? I'm not sure if that was the right, if that was the right heading on that column case. I mean, I've read Hebrews, right? I mean, I've read that chapter, you know. Um, have you read 35 through 38 case? Positive outcome. I mean, that's not, you know, that's by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, have you read 35 through 38? This is, this is what it says. This is, this is what the people of faith experienced to a great degree. They faced years in flogging. Positive outcome. Chains and imprisonment put to death by stoning? Sawed in two? Killed by the sword? Destitute, persecuted, and mistreated? Wandered in deserts, in mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground? How is that positive? How is that positive? The writer of Hebrews responds with a racing metaphor on the outcome of faith. And this is so important for us to really get here. And I, I looked at it several times and I'm thinking to myself, okay, what is he trying to communicate here? And it's really helped me to really understand his metaphor because he's using a racing metaphor and I happened to run the Columbus Marathon last October. Now, I don't recommend you running a marathon after experiencing that. I don't recommend it, but I did, but I did, run, but I did run it. <laughs> a few observations, a few observations. There were 18,000 people there at the start line. I mean, there, were, there was a crowd of people all around. It was very cold in the morning, so I, I dressed in, um, I had some heavy wool socks on to make sure I was warm, and I had a long sleeve shirt on as well. Uh, a few observations about that is I shouldn't have done that because by the time I got midway through, it was hot, and I was hot, and I had all these things on, and it was, it was weighing me down. Another observation is this. When you're running in such a mass of people, it's really important what you're focusing on. <laughs> I noticed I had a habit in the beginning of the race of looking back, and it's very, it's very discouraging to look back because <laughs> when you look back, you, you see thousands of people running right up after you. And it's pretty discouraging. <laughs> it's important what you focus on. What I've also observed is that it's also important how you fuel in what you're consuming as well. Here's the image that the writer of Hebrews gives us in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. He says, you're in the race. Followers of Jesus are in the race. And you're running. And you're not alone. The body of Christ is around you. There's a thousand people. And actually, you're running in concert with one another, but you're also running your race as well. Don't be discouraged. There's a cloud of witnesses in the sands. There's Abraham. There's Moses. There's Rahab. There's Gideon. There's Barak. And what they're doing is they're not silent. They already finished the race. And they're cheering you on. They're like, go ahead. Keep going, keep going. Not only that, you have a savior who's not somewhere hanging out, waiting for you maybe to finish or not. But what you'll notice in races is that there are pacers. And what you do in a race is you find the pacer that's gonna run your pace and you just follow that person. They have you on the right path. They're making sure your steps are measured and Jesus is your pacer. He's running right ahead of you. If you're wondering if you're doing it well, just fix your eyes on him. He's got you. Just keep with his pace as best as you can. And then also what you notice is the Father. God the Father is above. He's lighting your way. I started in the dark in the morning, but then it lit up. And I could see my path. Even though I didn't know what each step looked like, his word is lighting your way. And then the Holy Spirit is that fuel that's directing you and guiding you and leading you. And what you notice is that you've got support all around you. Even though the times would suggest that you should be discouraged and confused, faith is not the opposite of evidence, but faith is built on tangible, real, live support from the God of the universe. Faith is real, faith is real. So throw off those things that are hindering you. 
in the sin that entangles you and look away to Jesus Christ in the gospel that he brought, in the foundation of our faith that we believe in. That's what the writer of Hebrews is telling us. It's a message that's timely in the first century and it's also timely right now. Look away to Jesus. Perhaps this is what Paul is talking about. We have a tendency to look around and fix our eyes around sometimes. I do too. We have a tendency to look back, to try to recapture some previous error. Paul's saying, don't do that. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And the prize is that when you arrive at the finish line, what I experienced in the marathon is there's nothing like the feeling of finishing. And they give you that medal. And it's actually, when you're an adult, for the most part, it's not about the time that you finish in. It's just that you finished the race. And what I'm looking forward to is not a time on this earth, although God does give us joy in the here and now, but I'm looking forward to eternity. When God says, well done. The positive outcome is, well done, thou good and faithful servant. So followers of Jesus, they wear the trademark of faith, the trademark of faith. Let us pray. Father God, in the name of Jesus, we just thank you so much for this wonderful and timely word from the writers of Hebrews. We thank you, God, that you are not a God who is silent that you are not a God who's the absentee father, that you are not a God who does not care, but God, you are a God who shows up in real, substantive, intangible ways through history. And you're also a God who's showing up right now. We thank you for the wonderful testimony of your son, Jesus Christ, and that we don't have to wonder what's going on around here. We don't have to walk around without a purpose. We don't have to walk around without hope and lost because Jesus has been the pioneer. He's gone the way and lit the way before us, and he is also the perfecter of faith. Lord, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. That is the power of salvation, that message of reconciliation that you've entrusted with those who are followers of Jesus, Lord. We pray that you impress that truth on our hearts today in a time that just very frankly and very really is just, is just can be so confusing and so distracting, Lord, but we ask God that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you give us the ability to fix our eyes on Jesus and to look away to Jesus, Lord. We pray that you give us joy in doing that. We pray that you give us fulfillment and purpose in doing that as well. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.